Woo-wee! Scorch the Fears episode, I think we're on like 63 or something like that, with the amazing Vina Jetty. Um, Vina, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you coming on, and I'm excited to have you. Um, and yeah, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, 100%. So for the very few people who don't know who you are, <laughs> just quickly explain like, what what is your business what do you do like just give a quick intro into like what you're doing in the real estate space yeah absolutely so thank you for having me here i'm really excited to be here i'm vina jetty i'm the founder of a company called vive funds i am a large multifamily owner operator we specifically focus on class b value add assets across the sunbelt in arizona with a huge asterisk that is actually probably changing soon we're going to be uh, changing our markets a little bit as we've been doing more market studies and data research. And mm. so that's gonna change here shortly. Um, but we focus on really vanilla strategies, value add. Um, we target assets that are 200 units and up and $75 million is usually where we like to be there or above. S super vanilla stuff, right guys? $75 million <laughs> plus assets, you know, just the basics, bread usual. and butter, just classic <laughs> stuff, you know how it is. Um, so Vina, I like, again, thank you so much. You're like incredibly incredible in this industry. And I love seeing all the stuff you've been doing. I got introduced to you, like I was saying before the show from Pace and like, I've just loved your content ever since. So I, I just knew I had to have you on. Yes, um, right. You. Yeah. So getting real into it real quick. How I always start this, this is all about scorching the fears. This is yes. all about getting over your fears from starting. Cause Vina, you didn't know $900 million worth of real estate at one point in time, at some yeah. point in time, you own <laughs> nothing, right? At some point you were, you were like everybody else just living your life. Yeah. And so I, you're getting started into this entrepreneurship, this real mm -hmm. estate journey. Um, yeah. What were the fears you were dealing with? Like what were, what was the biggest fear that was holding you back when you were starting in real estate? Yeah. And how did you get over it? Uh, wow, there are so many fears and they still happen today. <laughs> uh, so it's definitely not gone away. Um, let's see, when I first started, I actually didn't, I didn't set out to build this large company or a big portfolio or anything like that. I just thought, okay, you know, we'll do a few deals. And actually going back even before I was in multifamily, I actually started in single family. So I really did not think we would ever get to the scale that we've gotten to in terms of our how many units we've transacted on at this point. Uh, because it's a very slow way to acquire a portfolio is with single family. And there was a point where my fear at that point was, I don't know how this is sustainable. It's so much work to try to have multiple single family homes. I remember there was a week where I bought five houses in the same week and I was like so tired. I was managing contractors and answering tenant calls and collecting rents and stuff like that. And I was like, this is just not sustainable. And my fear at that time was one, what is the next level? How do I scale to that next level? But two, how do I do it in a way that's methodical and that is going to continue allowing me to grow? And that's where multifamily really was kind of like the aha moment that I was like, oh, okay, this is how you buy a hundred units at once is in a multifamily asset. Um, and then your fears of, well, am I qualified? What am I doing? I have no idea what I'm doing and trying to figure out those steps along the way because it's so different than the single family space. And I had exposure to commercial assets. I, you know, come from a corporate real estate background. So I had an opportunity to really understand and see the commercial side size, but not on my own portfolio, which is a totally different beast. Um, I remember the first time I ever raised capital, I cried myself to sleep every day for like six weeks because I thought oh. I wasn't going to be able to raise the capital. Oh, no. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a different... Uh, you know, it's just a different set of unknowns when you're first starting out. So can I definitely, I definitely want to go into that. So I have two questions in my mind. I'll start with the first one, which okay. is, do you think owning a hundred unit multifamily complex is easier than owning 
five single families? Like I'm curious. Thousand percent. Whoa, um, guys. Whoa. <laughs> Something that I learned from like listening to you and other people where I was like, how? How is that possible? Okay, here's why. It's a common misconception that owning single family is easiest because it's so easy to get into, right? Like most people that are in real estate will at some point or another own a single family home, right? Like whether it's your primary home, a rental, secondary home, doesn't matter. That it has a low barrier to entry because everybody talks about it, everybody does it. There are a million programs that teach you how to do it. The problem with multifamily is what I also had when I first started was okay, multifamily is for billionaires and like centimillionaires because I don't have $75 million. I don't even have $2 million or a million dollars or whatever that number is that you need for that multifamily, whatever size you're looking at. And so what happens is you go, okay, this isn't for me. It's for Blackstone, not for Vina Jetty. Right. But the reality is, is it's easier to actually transact on large multifamily. And the larger you go, the easier it actually is because it's counterintuitive but the financing of it doesn't actually rely on Vina Jetty and like what's in my bank account, what my credit score is. What it actually relies on is the business of the asset. So how much rent can the mm. asset generate? How much uh, debt can the asset actually support? And then just really managing that well. So it's just a totally different way of thinking about financing these assets. And then you go, okay, well, I don't have the 20%, 30%, 50%, whatever it is for the down payment. But what a lot of people don't know, and myself included when I first started, is there is a whole exemption in the SEC rules which allow people to raise securities. So essentially, I can go and I can get 10 of my closest friends and family to each put in $100,000 and let me manage it under a Reg D exemption. And now I have a million dollars and I can go take that million dollars and I can buy a two million or three million or four million dollar property because the power of leverage hmm. is so incredible. And in multifamily, it's at scale. Crazy, guys. So that's insane to me. So I'm definitely at the stage where I own a few single families mm -hmm. and I'm like, I'm intimidated by it even. Like I know logically it 100% makes sense to me how like if everything's under one roof, you have one property manager, you have one right. plumbing system, you have one electrical system, it all right. logically makes sense. Yes. But what I'm curious about is like, how do you, is it literally like, I'm, you kind of answered it in the sense, is it literally I go to a bank and they just don't care about me at all? And like, they just see, oh I just show them the, yeah. like the revenue and like what price I'm buying at. And they're like, screw it, Jonah, I don't care at all. Or <laughs> like, what, what is it like really? Yeah, so it depends is the answer. So there is a product called non-recourse lending, right? And what that means is if you borrow on the pro or borrow debt on the property, that's non-recourse. I might be signing the guarantor carve outs, but that really means, I'm not going to take January rent or February rent and go and buy a Lamborghini or a plane or something like that, right? It just means that I am actually going to pay the mortgage to the first lender. So it's like, we call it like the bad boy carve outs, right? So as long as there's no mm. malicious intent, um, you are not personally guaranteed on it. So for example, if the asset doesn't perform and it gets foreclosed on or something like that, then you as the sponsor are not going to have your assets at risk. Whereas in a single family home, you personally guarantee it. And so there's recourse. Right. So if my home, I end up not paying my mortgage, they're going to foreclose. And then if they sell it for less than I owe, they're going to come after me to go and try to recoup their loss. In a non-recourse product, which is common in multifamily, that doesn't exist. So they do care about you as a borrower because they want to make sure that you know what you're doing, you're savvy, you're sophisticated, mm -hmm. you're going to work hard, you're experienced, et cetera. But they're not looking at it through the same lens that a single family lender is looking at it. They're looking at it from a risk mitigation standpoint. So if you have, you know, maybe you have an issue with a credit report or maybe you um, don't have the full liquidity multifamily is really conducive and set up for partnerships. So you can always bring mm. in partners to help you mitigate some of the shortfall there. And that's very common in the multifamily space. I love it. So 
that's step one, I'm assuming, right? So let's say I'm, this is one of my goals this year. So this is also why this might just turn into yeah. personal advice for me of how to get yeah, into multifamily. <laughs> it might just end up being that the whole I love it. But I own a couple single families. I know a ton about creative financing, thanks to Pace. Mm -hmm. Never owned a multifamily before. I'm really good at talking to people. I'm good at hosting podcasts, doing social media, all of that stuff. What would you recommend is the first step someone like me should do to get into multifamily, into buying a 50 unit or a hundred unit? What yeah. should what should be my first thing that I do right now? Okay. So I feel like you already probably are doing like the most important thing, which is just showing up. And I know it sounds like such a cliche answer, but mm -hmm. it really is. It's 90% of the battle is showing up because it's hard. It's intimidating. It's overwhelming. It's like trying to take a single sip from a fire hose, right? It's right. hard that's where most people are going to drop out and stop. And they really should because there's a lot more that comes after it. So if that is going to be too much for you, you probably don't have what it takes to actually be a successful multifamily investor. So one is show up. Um, the second is educate, get educated. You need to have a certain base level. Like you would never go and build a house by just putting up siding, right? No, you need the foundation mm -hmm. first right? and then you need the infrastructure. So get educated understand what different terms and lingo, what all of these things mean, how they interact with each other. Because we speak about multifamily. I, you know, Pace always makes fun of me for this. He's like, why do multifamily investors have to have like their own language? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I just have to play by the rule. And so learn that language, right? Like I'll give you a classic example as like a stark difference between the single family and multifamily world. So in single family, when you have an equity partner, right? Like someone who's writing the check for your single family, mm -hmm. you guys call them private money lenders, right? Right. In the multifamily world, no one would ever call it a private money lender because a lender inherently means it's debt on the property and your actual lender or your senior debt holder will really hate that. So we call them investors or LPs or private money is fine. Uh, private equity is fine, but they're never private money lenders for us. So anytime someone says that to me, like, where do you get your, your PMLs from or your private money lenders from? I'm immediately like, oh, okay, you're in single family. Like it's the easiest telltale sign. And when you're getting into multifamily, because so much of it is a credibility issue, right? A lot of people won't send you deals or won't send you financials until they know you can actually transact. These small nuances of being able to talk the talk really matter until you can have a track record and a resume. Right. 100%. So step one is just get educated, like just 100% start by learning the lingo. Don't sound like a gosh darn idiot. Like know what a, I think it's a T12. I'm starting to get educated. Yes, right? That's like what, <laughs> like where it shows like all that's like incomes and expenses, something yes. like that. Yeah. It's okay. basically a profit and loss or an operating right. statement. It's more or less a profit and loss. Like I'm starting to get educated. I'm like, okay, this is what this yeah. is. This is what this is. This is what this is. I okay. love that. That can easily be done, guys. Just FYI, so you guys know. That can easily be done if you're in sub two. Pace has like a whole multifamily course now that explains T12s, um, private equity, all of that type of stuff and like the best ways of getting into it. So yes. what's next? Now I just want to go through the whole process. So like, let's say I know exactly what everything is. Mm -hmm. I'm educated. I could... I could BS my way with a broker into buying a $200 million asset because they think Love I'm it. super legit. Let's just say we're at that point. Okay. What, what, what next? Okay. You, you probably won't be able to really just talk your way <laughs> into it because um, they're used to dealing with investors and sponsors, but you can okay. act like you can do it, right? So, because the, what they're going to do is they're going to ask you for a reference letter. They're going to ask you for referrals. They're going to try to find out mm -hmm. more about you to make sure you're actually legitimate and you actually can buy a $200 million asset. Um, right. Because they're they're going to go through the process with you and they're going to ask you for your resume. They're going to ask you for the last like three or five transactions you've had. And you might go, okay, wait, Dina, I don't have any of that, right? So, after you learn the lingo, you have kind of the foundation. That's where you start to put like the pillars, the cornerstones in place, which are your partners. Um, so now you're starting to find partners. So you're figuring out where in the, I call it like the trinity of multifamily, like the triad of multifamily, which is acquisitions, capital, and then post-close operations. So who is acquiring? So talking to brokers, finding the asset, underwriting it, going through due diligence, getting that process in order. The second 
person is the capital, right? So who's getting the debt in order? Who's raising the equity? And the reality is, is you may touch more than one of these pieces, or you may take pieces of certain uh, ones of these three uh, Trinity spots. And then um, the third is going to be your operations. Who's going to actually execute the business plan? Um, so like I said, you might fall into one, two, or partially into three, but it's very tough for someone new, especially to just do all three. So you need to find partners. So you need those three key players, and then you need a KP or a loan guarantor. So you need someone who can qualify you for the debt, because even though you might be great, if your partners don't have enough experience, your bank is going to see that as a risk. And they're going to want someone who's going to sign on the loan alongside you that has had multifamily experience in the past. Um, it doesn't mean you absolutely will need one, but you may need one if you start out. So make sure you have those people in place too. So those are kind of your teammates or your partners that you need to start creating. And then based on what you're doing in each role, uh, you know, your next steps are going to vary a little bit. Gotcha. Okay. So that's super interesting. I guarantee like everyone who's listening on this, none of them are going to be able to do the operating part off the bat. That sounds like you need like years of experience type of thing. <laughs> the debt and the being able to talk to the brokers and stuff like that, that sounds like somebody could learn that decently quickly. So I, I'm going to, I want to bring it back to you a little bit too, in the mm -hmm. sense of like, which one did you start with? Like, which, how did you, did you, which part of those three twin, Trinity did you yeah. get into first? I started on the capital side and that's easily the side I still prefer today. It's what I'm good at. It's what I enjoy. I like investor relations. I like getting to know our investors. Um, so I like the capital side, but I do touch the operation side and I touch the uh, acquisition side. So I have smaller roles and smaller slices in each of them, but I primarily oversee the um, capital side. And then I like the legal structure and tax structure. Those are things that I have a very heavy hand in. Uh, but actually, and I'll say too, operations is not necessarily something that certain people shouldn't be doing. It's just fair enough matter of what your strengths are because there are some people that are just great operators right like i'm a visionary i'm not an integrator and someone who's a very strong integrator you're giving them a roadmap, right a blueprint for what needs to happen and where they need to be and how they need to track month over month and so with that and that's what your underwriting is right so your underwriting should tell them exactly where they need to go and they need to just steer the ship that way so it's it probably, I'm guessing you maybe are not the operator. But I'm not at all. I am not yeah, the operator. And, and that's great to know that, right? But now you need to go find out, find out who that partner is that is the operator that will execute on the business plan. I love it. So basically, once you're educated, it's just finding the right people and understanding which parts you're the best at. Now, what type of let's go you went into a little bit of like what type of person for the operator it's an integrator it's the person who just gets things done it's the coo yeah. type of yes. person so i'm curious for like the acquisitions versus the money raising what mm -hmm. do you feel like how would you differentiate between the two and maybe even do it through your story of like why you chose to go the money route versus like the finding deals route yeah, I'm a visionary, but more importantly, I'm an extreme extrovert. Like I was just telling someone earlier today that I go to the airport early so that I like have enough time to talk to all the people that are there. And it's just like, oh, okay. So you like take meetings at the airport. I was like, no, no, no. I just know there's going to be other people there that I haven't <laughs> met yet. So I have to go early so that I can talk to them and make sure I find Hilarious. out what the story is. Right. But like, that's who I am at my core. And you know, by contrast, my husband is like an extreme introvert. Like the idea of going to dinner with more than like three other people is like exhausting for him and sounds like his personal health. And so it's like really what my strength is, what I enjoy doing. Um, I'm good at talking to investors. I'm good at explaining um, what our investments look like, why we do them, how we do them. I'm good at those things. So I, that's why I chose that as kind of my main bread and butter, if you will, on the acquisition side, uh, you, sometimes when you start out, you have to be wearing more than one hat, right? Like, because you don't have your employees yet. You haven't built the infrastructure of your company yet. You don't need it yet, but that means you're doing a lot of that work. 
So for example, on the acquisition side, I really love due diligence because to me, it tells a story. Mm. I get to be on the asset. I get to talk to the residents. I get to talk to the property management on site. So for me, I really like due diligence in terms of the acquisition piece. I really hate underwriting. I'm not good at it, but it's not my highest and best use. But because I love strategy, once underwriting is complete, I actually then go through it and I kind of take a fine tooth comb through the underwriting. So I'm not good at, like, I'm not like a data entry person like that. I'm not highly organized like that. I pay people to keep me organized um, because I'm just not good at it. But if that is your strength, then you might be great at execution or you may be great at acquisitions. It just depends on what your personal strengths are and what your personal interests are. I gotcha. So generally speaking, what what do you feel like is the part that of those three that's the hardest to find? Like who, which is the most biggest struggle mm -hmm. for most people? Like, like I'm curious whether it's the money actually finding the deal or yeah. operating it. Like, which is the, which is the hardest part for like most uh, deals? I guess it depends who you are, but I'm curious. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I know like instinctively the answer, because I think more so than finding any one of these roles, it's like finding the right partner for you because mm. you can find all of these people, but if they're bad partners for you or they don't share your vision or you guys are not going to gel well together, then it's, it, they're all hard then in that regard. Right. So I, I don't know that it's anyone, I think get, if you're just starting out, getting into the capital raising side or the, uh, capital side of it is going to be the lowest barrier of entry. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't think that if your personality does not is not conducive to the capital stack, then I don't think that you should be going after that role with a partnership. You would make a bad partner for someone else. So you should really say like, I'm great at acquisitions or I'm really great at operational, um, operational strategy and executing. And then find the partners that are like me that really like the capital side and that like the acquisition side and that can be a good compliment to you as a partner. Love it. So let's go through that then. How does one find the right partner for them? Like uh, what makes uh, a good partner? It's yeah. I mean, it's the classic next question. It's the I hardest one. It. It's like, I won't lie. I mean, I know in the single family space, it's like asking someone, how do you find love? But yes. Yeah. I'm going to ask it uh, anyways. I mean, I don't even know the answer to that. I've been married for 10 years, so I don't know where people go to find love anymore. But yeah. um, we did it the old-fashioned way online, you know, like back before there were apps. Um, but right. I would say networking, 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 right? And um, date the people that you are interested in partnering with. Look at what their integrity is like. See how they treat like their personal lives. Actually, Pace and I, we were um, together in Arizona a few weeks ago when we were talking about this. And he was saying, look, I don't like to do business with people who cheat on their spouses. Like, it's just, I don't hang out with those people. I don't like it. I don't prefer it. And I was like, yeah, I totally agree with that. And, you know, his point was, if you're willing to cheat on the person that you committed to yeah. your whole Sorry. life, yeah, what are you, how are you going to treat me as your business partner? And I was like, okay, yeah, I, I mean, that makes sense to me. And I completely share that sentiment. Um, so it's like, find the people who's, core morals and values align with yours. And I think it's hard to do that if you don't know what your core values are. Uh, we have a few at our company that we kind of hold true to. One is um, how we do small things is how we do everything. So I like to be really careful about um, the little things because I want the perception for investors to be, okay, everything they do is carefully thought out and carefully planned and methodical, right? Um, the second thing is with investors, our core focus, no matter what we do at any given point, everything and anything we do starts and stops with how it affects our investors. And mm. if I have partners that don't agree with that or that care more about our GP or sponsor slice, that's just going to be a really bad fit for me. So knowing and understanding like really who you are at your core is going to help you vet people um, better. But it's it's a networking thing. It's a walk before you run thing, right? Like get to know each other, maybe do one deal together before you go and roll out a whole entire company with someone that you're just getting to know. 
I love it. I mean, it's basically the same answer as single family, right? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly the same with single family. It's just, right. you've got to be, you got to like align morally with like what you're doing. Where are we going with this? And then also like, do our skill sets match? Like, am right. I going to be the private money guy? And then you're going to be finding the deals and then you're going right. to be the operations. So it's, it's, it's funny how like, yes, it's different, but also super similar okay. in the sense of like, it's all business in the yes. end. Yes. Right. I mean, it doesn't change from asset class to asset class or even from business to business, right? Like yeah. I think most successful businesses probably run on very similar principles. That's why multifamily is not rocket science. Like we're not reinventing a wheel. We're just doing something slightly different at scale. I love it. It's amazing. So let's go back to your story. So you're pulling your hair out from these single family rentals. Yes. And then what? Um, and then I said a few four letter words and then I was like, <laughs> I'm basically not going to do this anymore. This just doesn't work. Okay. Um, and then I kind of wandered around aimlessly for a little bit going, okay, what, like, what's the solution? What do I do? And I, um, met somebody who was doing multifamily and was like, Hey, let's go buy multifamily together. He was like, okay, that sounds that sounds like a good idea. Why not? Um, and then that is how I actually started multifamily is somebody told me about it and kind of opened my eyes. And then I started networking more um, to look for those partners and to get to know. Wait, like, wait, wait. Can I interrupt you for a second? So yes. you just someone you just met someone off the street who was like, let's buy multifamely or like um, go a little more into that. No, like, I think actually, yeah, we were at a conference somewhere and he, he's a good friend of mine to this day i'm actually going to see him in a couple of weeks uh so he's he's an operator he was he had already started maybe a few months ahead of me um but he was the one that really like said hey multifamily is the way to go and i was like okay seems seems legit and um i started falling down the rabbit hole of education and i started reading about it and listening to podcasts and learning about it and talking to people about it and networking um, in order to find the partners that I needed. And um, then on my first deal, I partnered with um, Joe, who initially was like the first partner who kind of opened my eyes to multifamily. And, uh, you know, the rest is history since then. <laughs> okay. So opened your ideas to multifamily and then you just went to a ton of multifamily networking groups and then yeah. you just, and then was it like you just found people where I'm like, you and I would click, you and I should be doing business together. Yeah, no, that, that was exactly how it went. Like basically I found partners. I started talking to them like every day. Um, it was actually just one partner at first, started talking to him every day and I was like, okay, I think we can do this. We should just do this. Let's just, Let's just do it and see what happens. Uh, and like, like I've said, like it, there were a lot of challenges in the beginning, but ultimately that first deal is, it's always the hardest deal, but it is the one that really is the catalyst for future success. Right. So let's talk about your first deal. What was it? What were, where was it? What happened? How'd you yeah. find it? How'd you raise the money? How did it, how did it all end up going down? Yeah. So we bought, I can't remember if it was like 196 or 200 units. I don't know why. It, just, yeah. I, it was like crazy, but it was, it was in Dallas. And back then you could buy 200 units for like, we bought it for $15.9 million. Okay. Which I know seems really big, especially <laughs> when we're used to transacting at like sub jumbo loans. You're right. But today I'm like, man, I could do that deal. Like once a week, I could do that deal. Right. Um, and we ended, yeah, we ended up selling it for $24 million, eight or nice. uh, 33 months later. So we made like a huge profit. Our investors were really happy. As far as raising the capital goes, uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done to date in business because I just didn't know what I was doing. And, um, it doesn't get easier. You get better. So the first raise, I cried myself to sleep for six uh -huh. weeks. Straight. 
Um, yeah, I like literally cried myself asleep. There was a point where I always tell this story because I just think it's so funny thinking back on it. But I told my husband, I was like, honey, we have to sell everything we own. And he was like, okay, whatever. Go back to sleep. You're having a nightmare or whatever. And I was like, no, but for real. And he was like, okay, that's fine. It'll be fine. And I'm like, and I have to sell your car. And he was like, wait, 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 what do you mean? What are you talking about? Uh, it's like, oh, now you're paying attention, are you? Uh, but I was ready to sell everything we own. Now, the spoiler alert is we did end up raising the capital. Um, I, you know, I, I was reaching out to everybody that I had a relationship with, like people who I haven't talked to in years, but had, you know, like I went to high school with them and we were like best friends in high school. I literally reached out to everybody and was like begging for people to mm. believe in me. Um, because that's the other thing is everybody believes in you and everybody's ready to write you a check until time comes to actually write the check. And then right. nowhere to be found. They're like, you know, new phone, who dis? And you're like, man, I just, just give me a hundred thousand dollars, please. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, okay. That was the most stressful part for you was like actually yes. raising the money at the beginning because you didn't know what you were doing. Right. What, what mistakes did you make? Like, what were you doing wrong where it was so stressful? I mean, obviously now it's way easier for you because you've done so many. Everyone's like willing to give you yeah. money. But at yeah. the beginning, somebody's trying to raise. Uh, how much did you have to raise for that? A couple mil? Two mil? Yeah, three mil? We, I, my portion that I was responsible for was 1.2 million. Okay. So then how, what would you have done differently? Like what, what strategies might have you implemented you still only have the connections you have at that yeah. point, but like, what could you possibly have done differently? You think? Well, one, nobody knew what I was doing. Cause I never really told anybody about what I was doing. Mm. Um, I, I accidentally fell into understanding what raising capital was because I had friends that would be like, Hey, um, can you teach me how to do what you're doing on the weekend? And I'm like, mm, no, busy neurosurgeon. I can't because it's a full-time job. I work a hundred hours a week and then turn into, okay, well, how about I just give you a check and you just do what you do. And when you write a hundred thousand dollar check, I'll write a hundred thousand dollar check and we'll do it together. And I was like, okay, I don't know if this is a thing. Like, is this allowed? Interesting. This is illegal, right? And so I called uh, uh, Nick McGrew, who you probably know him from uh, being around Pace too. But uh, so Nick is a securities attorney. And I said, hey, Nick, um, I want to take someone's money. He's like, what do you mean take someone's money? I was like, no, <laughs> but we're going to like profit share and stuff. And he was like, oh, okay, great. What is it for? And then that's when I learned about the Reg D exemption, uh, Rule 506. And so that actually is what gave me my start into this. The thing I would change or the things, and there are many things I would change. There's not one thing. Um, first and foremost, I didn't tell anybody what I was doing before I needed mm. the money. So it was a very quick burn, right? I was, hey, so great to catch up after not talking for 10 years. Um, also, I am raising capital for this deal. Do you want in? And most people are like, is this your first deal? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, okay, come back to me when you've done one successfully, right? Mm -hmm. um, then the the second piece of it is I probably, well, since we were able to successfully close it, we didn't really have to do this. But if you're starting out, I would say be ready to give away more of the deal than you want to because you need someone with a track record and a resume to be like your advisor, your partner, or whatever it looks like. And they're not really going to be incentivized to do so unless you give up a large portion of that. But after you do the first one, you can start making changes and asking for more for yourself because now you have experience. But that first one, just be prepared to do whatever it takes to get the deal done. Um, raise your capital when you don't have a deal. It's much easier. We do that still today, mm. right? Like, so when I don't have a deal on the table, I'm talking to new investors. I'm explaining to them the company, the strategy, who I am, what our track record is. And then when I have a deal, all their vetting is the deal. And it's a much quicker process to raise that capital. Interesting. Um, yeah. Another thing I wish I would have done early on is like 
create a thought leadership platform, whether it's a podcast or a mastermind, or you're just creating content on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or wherever it is, whatever your interest is. And a lot of people are like, oh, but I'm an introvert. Like the idea of being on a camera totally freaks me out. Fine. Then make a newsletter. You can have a newsletter list, but have some kind of system or process to handle leads. So like a CRM of sorts and make sure you're staying top of mind with your investors when you're sending out newsletters once a month, they're seeing your name. They know, okay, Vina Jetty does multifamily, right? But if they never hear from me and they only hear from me once every like 10 years where I'm like, hey, I need money, it's a much harder hurdle to cross. Gotcha. Okay. So there's a lot to take out of that. There was a lot in there that like, I'm mentally, I'm going to like write notes later. I'm going to rewatch my own podcast and take notes (laughs) on it, I think. But um, what I really want to know, or like one of the things I really want to know, this was something Pace mentioned, and I want you to talk about it for a second, because this is my idea of how I'm thinking of starting and getting into it was something called a fund of funds, where basically I raise like a million dollars, I have a million dollars, and then I just immediately go to you is how I understand it. And you just plug it in. And Mm -hmm. I'm considered a GP, general partner, but I'm also not, I don't know. Can you explain a little bit more what that is? Yes. And I want to be like really clear, right? Neither of us are securities attorneys. Neither of us have any licenses. So this is just education, right? Um, Right. Because there's a lot of nuance to this. And this, you, your first call, if you're thinking about raising any capital before you post about it, before, like the moment you have a thought, you need to be calling your securities attorney. And I still do Mm -hmm. that to this day. My first call is to Nick all the time because securities rules change so frequently. So that's first and foremost, you are going to reach out to your securities attorney. You're going to tell them exactly what you're trying to do and don't hold anything back because you need them to be able to help you. Um, so with that, um, you're going to reach out to your securities attorney. You're going to come to, you're going to get their blessing because just because you're following securities rules, there's also investment company act and the investment advisors act. So what will happen is, is then you might come into my parent fund. So you are not a GP on my fund. You are the general partner of your own fund and you can raise capital through there. Um, like I said, there are, are um, real, are, sorry, investment advisors act and investment company act rules that do come into play when you are a fund of funds, which is why you need a securities attorney to help advise you or help you find the exemption that you can rely on. But what you don't want to do is go out, raise capital, do it incorrectly, and then have issues where you might not be able to raise capital ever again. Right. Okay. So answer I got from that was talk to your lawyer first. But how about um, apart from that, what do you think of it as a strategy for a newer person? It made sense to me as like making total sense as like the weight. It's like, oh, yeah, like I because I raise private money for my single family deals. Right. So for me, I feel like that would just be an instant switch Easy. where like I could yep. like just move it to a different investment class and be like, hey, you're going to get also multifamily. I feel like you give the private money investors way more of the deal than you do with yes. a single family deal. Absolutely. So, Except we don't call them private money investors, right? <laughs> Wait, what do you call them again? Equity partners? They can be they can be equity partners, private equity, LPs, investors. Usually we refer to them as LPs. Gotcha. Okay, so. cool. Cool. So okay. yes, but yes, that that is it's a great way to start because it helps you build your track record and your resume. It lets you kind of have your hand held by a more experienced operator um, without having to take on all of the risk on your own if you're deploying it as a fund into other sponsors' uh, investments. Gotcha. So I'm curious too. So with your first deal, mm-hmm. you so your stressful part it sounds like the money raising after. Yep that well let's go through the lessons again i just want to recap them one is get loud if you're not freaking Mm -hmm. starting a podcast i have no idea why people don't start podcasts i think people get intimidated when like um when like they see me with someone like vina vina has no idea who i am right really like she i just messaged her and was like hey i'm a student of pace like i want you seem amazing i want to get you on my podcast share you with my audience and she's like yeah sure you've been doing it for like, like she has requirements now, right? Like she yeah. probably, if you just started, wouldn't do it. But like I had been doing it for a while, so it worked out. But I've gotten people like 
Brent Daniels, Pays, Jamil, and like a lot of these bigger people will come on your platform if you just ask them. Yeah. So like I, w- I really want to like get this in people's head of like how important it is, how like insanely important social media is. It's why I think it's social media is why Pace was instantly able to get into multifamily, like without like totally. a, like any any barriers to entry whatsoever, totally. right? Um, so I I wanted to start with that as like, that's the main lesson I heard from it. Yeah. Also talk to an attorney. Don't do this without talking to an attorney first. If you have $0 in the bank, it sounds like not the right strategy. Do some single family stuff. What do you, what do you think of that? Um, Well, I think if you have $0 in the bank, you can still do it. You just need to have partners who are willing to put up that initial capital because remember to your legal fees, those get, those can all get be charged to the fund. They can all be recouped from the fund. Oh, love it so much. Okay. So you don't need any money. So this is a zero money strategy as well to own millions of dollars. It can be. Vina's like in the, in the, um, in like the background or like in like the back, just like being like, not what I meant, but I. <laughs> it, it's funny though, because I feel like that again is like a really stark difference between the single family world and the multifamily world is like, everybody talks about getting into these assets with zero money down, which is awesome. And like, I want to buy things without money too, but it's like in multifamily, that's not really the core focus. It's really pegged more to performance, stability, and returns. What does that mean? Explain uh, that. Like, what do those three words mean to you? Because yeah. I, I understand the definitions, but I know you mean something than what's coming up in my head. Yeah. Like, so I don't mind putting money into the asset or raising the capital to put into the asset. If they're, if the asset's going to perform, if it's going to be stable and really like, especially in this time where interest rates are going crazy, if the assets are going to remain stable and historically multifamily does, and they're going to make solid returns, like profits to my investors. I'm good with that. What was the third? What was the third word I said? I said performance. I think return. Returns. Okay. Yeah. Profit, profitability. Right. Yeah. And that's, those are like the three core tenets of what I need for my investors. But you can like, you can do it with zero money down. I always think it's a better story when you are telling your investors like, hey, trust me with your money and I'm putting my money in too. Right. No, that totally makes sense. So your stressful part with your first deal, it sounded like was before it even closed, like was because, I mean, you were raising the private money. Does the private money person, like once the deal closes, are you just you're just done. You don't even have to do anything anymore. Or how does that work? No, I wish. I wish it were that easy. No, 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 no. Uh, because a lot of my relationships are the ones that are investing in our deal. I actually, I'm very involved with the post-close asset management. Now today we have asset managers that their job is to manage our assets, but I am constantly reviewing our performance week over week. I'm making sure that we're not getting too far off track. If we are, then we start intervening. Uh, we're very hands-on from an operational perspective, not because I like it or I'm like great at it, but because I have the buck stops with me. I have to answer to our investors. So I need to make sure that we're actually aware of what's happening and we can course correct sooner rather than later. Gotcha. So like explain, so like give an example of like what like, like, did you, what was like some communications you had in your first deal, for instance? Like, what was the oh. example of that? Um, oh gosh, I don't, I don't remember that far back. Or just in, just in uh, general. How about just yeah. in general? Any yeah. deal right now? Yeah. Okay. So like on, um, one of our deals right now, right. We have a, an issue where a program ended pretty abruptly that we were not anticipating. Usually we get some runway for when these government programs um, and, and we didn't on this one, which is fine from the sense of we conservatively underwrote it, but it is, it's not the way things are supposed to go. And we're really deviating from where our pro forma projections are. So now we're increasing our communication to investors where we've implemented certain programs. We've gone back and we've seen like, okay, where can we be more efficient? How can we course correct to make up for the pressure that we're feeling from the occupancy destabilizing? So there's a lot of moving levers and we're trying to pull all different ones at the same time. 
Gotcha. But like your part in that, for instance, so like mm -hmm. you hear that is yours just to go to your investors and talk to them? Like what, what, what are you actually doing in that part? If that makes so sense. I'm part of the decision-making side of what levers we're actually going to pull, how we're going to pull them, et cetera. Um, I default generally to our asset manager being able to make those decisions and my operating partner to make those decisions because she's really good at it. Um, but I, I was just in LA for two days um, with her and we were going through all of the different plans. We were looking at this, like how we could slice it, different strategies. Can we rebalance the capital stack? So I'm looking more on where are debt markets? What are different ways that we can look at the legal structure? Is there something that we can be more tax efficient in? Um, so all those things are things that I look at. Um, and so I'm much, I'm not in the weeds of the operation. I'm much more on the higher strategy side. Um, but then in addition to that, I, I spent a lot of my day, um, putting out investor communications and making sure I'm being proactive with investors. And that's actually like a secret, by the way, is when things are not going well, over communicate with your investors, it will be a much smoother ride for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. And it's like the first thing people don't want to do when things aren't going well, but it's the first thing you should do. Interesting. Explain where that comes from. Like what, there's a story behind that. Oh, there, yeah. That. Yeah, definitely. What's the story? Um, okay, you want to know the story? So this is actually one of the biggest failures I've had in Ooh. my career. Um, so we had an asset, and this was right when COVID hit. Um, it was in a work, we call it workforce housing, right? It's like a little bit of a lower income area. A lot of the tenants and residents there are uh, essential workers or frontline workers, right? Like they were showing up to the post office to make sure our mail was still being delivered during COVID. And so naturally, um, they were contracting COVID and then they'd be out of work for two weeks. This was like way in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And that asset, just the cash flow got so strained from the tenants um, not being able to work and not getting that paycheck. If that wasn't bad enough, um, it was also the time our interest only component on our loan was expiring. So we had principal and interest payments that were about to be due, which means we needed way more cash flow than we actually had available to us or we're, we're going to have available to us. And then and I can't even make this up, but um, lightning struck the property. And I don't mean it figuratively, <laughs> like literally lightning. Oh my God. the property and took out every single fire panel across the entire asset. Wow. And so it was just like a comedy of errors. And, you know, they were all things that weren't really in our control. But at the same time, it meant that we had to pause distributions temporarily. And I didn't know at that time whether the market was going to start doing kind of what it's doing now or if it was going to be, you know, okay. Or I mean, little did right. I know the market was still going to be on fire for the next few years. Um, but what we ultimately did, my gut instinct immediately when COVID hit was, okay, reach out to investors, tell them, hey, we, we've heard about this COVID thing. We know about it. Um, it is impacting our asset. We don't know what we're going to do about it yet, but we're on top of it, we're looking into here are the measures we're taking to stay on top of it. And I thought that communication should have gone out like pretty early on. Um, I was, and this is this is some of the challenges with partnerships is not, even though everyone has the best intentions, not everybody plays the same role. So not everybody has the same idea of how to attack a problem. And so my partners at that time were like, no, we don't know enough. We don't know what we're doing. And we, I'm like, yeah, but nobody does. It's like global pandemic. Like nobody yeah. on the planet was alive managing multifamily during the last global pandemic. And so then it became, okay, let's wait until we have better information and then we'll reach out to investors. But I, because I'm investor facing, I could sense that the investors were getting more panicked. I was getting more phone calls about it. And I was just mm -hmm. like, guys, to be proactive in addressing this. And, you know, I, I, it was resisted for months. And then ultimately I thought like, okay, Bina, in your regular life, you normally just ask for forgiveness instead of permission. So maybe that's what you should do here, um, which makes me a really bad partner in that regard. Cause I was like, all right, you know, I'm just going to do this. And then 
say, I'm sorry, and we'll figure it out. And so what I did was I implemented a monthly call with a video. Um, so it was a live webinar. We went through the same, uh, like not marketing deck, uh, PowerPoint every time, every month that the asset was not tracking where it needed to be. I scheduled it in the evening so everyone could join. All of our investors could come live. They could hear us talking about it. They could see us. Um, and they knew that we weren't trying to, I wasn't trying to hide from it. It just, it was, I want to be transparent. I want to be honest with you. And it's not ideal. And I hate it. And I hate having to make this call, but we had to. And so then um, our investors started giving me really great feedback, really supportive feedback. Like, Vina, I know you're doing a great job. I know you're on top of it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being on video, which surprised me. Um, I didn't realize how important it was for investors to see me as I was talking, not just hear me. Interesting. Yeah. And so um, they were like, we really appreciate that. I wish, you know, all of your partners would come on these videos. Like, why, why are your partners not coming on the video with you? And, you know, whatever. Like, I can't make anybody do anything. But for me, that was like a really stark difference in how I thought it should be handled versus how partners did. And like I said, I'm not saying that they are wrong. And for their investor base, maybe that is the right way. But for mine, I just, I, in my gut, I knew that that wasn't appropriate. I knew that wasn't the right call. I allowed myself to make it anyway, but I really wish I would have just done what I am eventually ended up doing earlier because it ended up so much better. I love it. What I love about that so much is that it's still the same lessons no matter, mm -hmm. even if you're dealing with $200 million, a million dollars, $100,000, it's all the same. Over communicate, yeah. be as honest as yeah. you possibly can be. That's something yeah. I learned with sellers for single family was like, just yeah. be incredibly honest with what's happening. Like mm -hmm. with whatever is going on, like they just want to know. And if you're honest up front about what's going on, then they're way more forgiving because they at least oh. know you know that what's you're trying. Happening? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's happening? And we ended up exiting that deal for a profit, surprisingly. Um, I thought we were going to just end up returning principal. And that, I mean, we did not hit pro forma. So that's like a huge failure in my book. Um, but, you know, it, it could have ended up a lot worse. And thankfully it didn't. But it was just one of those things. Like we, I learned from that so much so that now we probably one of the one piece of feedback I get from my investors today is you guys are so good at communicating. Thank you for your transparency. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your honesty. I love that. So that's definitely another mental note for me and the audience. So I want to know how you deal with stress because mm -hmm. I feel like I, again, this is me in my million dollar space or hundred thousand right. dollar space mind. Of right. Me dealing with $20 million sounds yeah. extra stressful than it does dealing with $100,000. I'm yeah, curious how you deal with stress. What? Wait, it's more zeros. It's the same. It's just more zeros. Right? That's what I'm sensing too, which is crazy to me, is that it's in the end the exact same. Yeah. Um, I mean, the problems are the same, just with more zeros, literally. Um, how do I deal with the stress? Well, isn't this why like alcohol was invented? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I try to be really pragmatic about what's happening. Uh, I do get stressed out because once you raise capital from someone else, regardless of how much it is or what it's for or anything like that, you never sleep the same way as when it's your own money, right? Um, so once you have done that, like you've already drink the poison, you might as well drink all of it because it's not going to change right. much for you, right? And so um, I worry about every single dollar that we take in from investors, whether it's $10 or $10 million or $10 billion, it doesn't change for me. Um, you know, it, and as you scale, you have better processes and systems in place that you are able to address some of the things that you normally wouldn't. Uh, what's been hard for me, and I actually realized this today when I was um, emailing an investor today. And I was like, I've always prided myself on giving our investors like unfiltered access to me, which is great. And like most of the time it's awesome. And I love, I love talking to our investors. I know all of my investors very well, uh, so much so that I hired a new investor coordinator last year. And when he came on board, he 
was like asking me about investors. I'm like, oh, okay, so-and-so you need to um, text them because they're not going to answer your email or, oh, don't, don't text them. Don't call them. Just send them an email and copy their admin or their partner or whatever. He was like, wow. And then I would like tell him a little bit about each investor. Like they they went to Hawaii last year and whatever. And he was like, it is scary to me how well you know your investors. Mm. Um, and I can't remember why I started telling you about this. So I was talking about why are you, how do you deal with stress oh, of like $20 million at? Yes. Okay. So that today, what I was thinking about today, sorry, I like, you're <laughs> okay. You're today. fine. My train of thought. Um, okay. You're so really good. I was, I, this is how I love, and that's how much I love my investors. That's how much I love talking to them. That's how much I like knowing them. You know, anytime I'm in a city where I know our investors are, I'll always reach out to them and try to schedule time with them. But what I realized is I love that side so much but it's not scalable when you have mm -hmm. tens of thousands of investors in your database, when you have hundreds of investments, right? It's just not a scalable process. And I found myself responding to texts in the way that I would have responded to them like five years ago. And now what I'm trying to be better about and what I actually am like, this is like, as of today, I'm actively trying to do this is to streamline the communication, right? Because I want them to get an answer. I want them to have an efficient answer and I want to interact with them, but I cannot have it be on Instagram and on email and on the phone and in text, right. and voicemail. It's just too chaotic. And someone is bound to slip through the cracks. So now what I've started trying to do is say, I appreciate that. Yes, I'm absolutely happy to answer. Can you please email me? Because then I can send that email to someone else who can give me the answer, right? Like our asset manager can give me a quick answer instead of me looking it up and then having to respond to that text. Uh, but that that's something that's really tough. Uh, maybe that's a fear of mine a little bit is losing that connection with our investors mm. while streamlining the process. Right, yeah. right. I gotcha. Yeah, I mean, definitely, it's definitely hard, like doing like, I obviously am not at your guys' scale whatsoever, but definitely going through those growing pains of being yeah. like, okay, like for me, like, I can't keep all my agents on my phone anymore, it needs to be in a CRM, so I can yeah. track what the hell is going on with us, right? And like, it's yeah, like, that sounds like it's 100% yeah. it. But Okay, so we're getting to the end. I could talk to you forever, but you actually have things to do, right? So <laughs> I want to make sure I don't take up too much of your time. But this is a question I really like ending these podcasts with. Okay. And that is, Vina, if you could go back to yourself okay. that day, right when you were, I want to do multifamily is what you know for. So when you were about to do your first multifamily deal or just starting to get okay. into it, what okay. would you say to yourself then, knowing all the stuff that you know now? Uh, you go further faster. Ooh, explain that. Yeah, I wish I would have bought everything back then um, because there was so much opportunity and I was scared to mm. take on that much opportunity. But really, I think that you know, some people say you like rise to the occasion and other people are like, no, you fall to your highest level of preparation. And I think maybe both can be true. Um, but I would have spent more time getting better and better and educating faster and faster so that I could have moved quicker. And I would have found um, partners earlier on that were ready to scale with me. I love it. Incredible. Vina, you're incredible. That was an amazing podcast. I learned so much about multifamily that like I they were like, I'm gonna rewatch this and take notes while I'm I so love it. Because right now I got right now I gotta manage stuff, but like I'm gonna take notes on this one. Definitely it. one of the more educational ones I think we've ever had for sure. Um how can people reach you? What like are you raising money from people? What are you looking for? How can we <laughs> how can me and my community help you? Well, remember, I'm always raising money. So the answer is okay. always so yes. If no matter you've what. got money, the answer is always yes with Vina. Love yes, it. Always so, yes. I'm always raising capital. So um, what um how do they give you money? Is it Venmo? What do we how do you Yeah, do you can like Venmo, <laughs> you can drop off a suitcase full of money. Uh no, I'm just kidding. Uh we do everything with legal documents. Uh okay. you, we do have like our SEC rules we have to follow. So you do have to be an accredited investor to invest with us. Um, mm -hmm. if you want to invest, you can go to vivefunds.com, B-I-B-E-F-U-N-D-S.com. 
if you want to learn about multifamily. And Jonah, I hope that you are. Are you in my Facebook community? I am in your Facebook community. Okay. I am in That's your Facebook community. I've been, I've been paying attention. Okay, good. Yeah, I do a lot of education there. I do a lot of teaching. Uh, it's called Mastering Multifamily with Vina Jetty. And you can just like answer the questions. You can join, invite your friends. Um, but in there, what I love about it is I get to like hang out with the community. I do Zoom calls. Um, and actually, that was a big fear of mine is starting this mm. whole Facebook community. I was like so scared to do it. And then Hayes kept like watering the seed he planted a long he's time ago. He's good at that. Oh, he's so good at it. He's so, he's like, <laughs> when you have your Facebook community, he's like, Hayes, I'm not going to have my Facebook community. This he's is like, the name of it? Yes. Right. That is it. Yep. Mastery okay. Multifamily with Vina Jetty. And uh, anyway, so I do these Zooms. They're actually free for anybody who wants to join live. It's the first hundred people can join my Zoom call. And then after that, it goes into Vina's vault and it hangs out there, but which is a subscription. But uh, anybody can join. We do a lot of like team building. Probably all of the people you need to do a deal successfully are probably in that group already. Love uh, it. So everybody. I don't even need to network. I just go into the Facebook no, group and yes. start hitting people up. Yeah, you network in there. What do you think? So, okay, so let's say I'm new. Joe, yeah. Never done a deal before. How mm -hmm. should I meet people? What? Sh okay. How should people use your Facebook community? Yeah, you go in, you make an introduction about what you do and what your experience is. And I love it when people share pictures or like their family and stuff because I like to know the personal side. Um, and you say like, hey, I'm Jonah. This I'm a single family investor. I'm getting ready to transition into multifamily. I am scared of A, B, and C, right? Like whatever Ooh, your fear like is, address them right out of the gate and say, I think I have an interest in acquisitions. Is there anybody that is looking for an acquisitions partner? Is there someone who can raise capital? Is there someone who can operate? And find the people in there to set up Zoom calls, go meet each other offline, meet for a cup of coffee, set up Zoom calls. Like I have groups of people in there who now have like what WhatsApp groups of just accountability partners where there'll be like five of them or 10 of them in one group and they all check in with each other. They might not even do business together, but they check in with each other and they keep each other in the right mindset to keep moving forward. We celebrate everybody's wins in there. It's like a, it's supposed to be a community for everybody, whether you're starting out or you've transacted on a bunch of real estate. So first post should be an intro. Yes. Into who you are, into, into experience, mm -hmm. your fears. Fears. And what you want to do. Yes. And then burning questions. If you have burning questions that you want to ask, ask in the group. I, some people will message me on like Instagram and on Facebook and all these places. I'm like, no, post these in the group because if you have these questions, someone else does too. Let's help more people. 100%. And also Vina is way too busy for you guys, right? Like, like, honestly, like I, I, she's got so much stuff going on. There are people in her community. I already know it because all of my friends, by the way, like there, I was completely screwing up. There are a ton of people in here giving you love that I just was completely missing throughout the entire, <laughs> the entire podcast. So I was focusing in on what you were saying, but guys, what you, what we want to do here like for Vina, because we, we want to give value before we get any value. And it is mm -hmm. joining your Facebook, adding to it. Like yes. I'm going to post in this afterwards. Literally, I'm probably going to go into the Facebook group, post exactly how you just told me to do it um, yeah. and start meeting people. Even though I might not be 100% ready, I still am a little bit in the education yeah. place. It's better to start meeting people, start taking action now and start being active in that Facebook group. Because Vina, I bet you watch what's happening in that Facebook group. So you see who's like doing stuff. And like, yeah. if you really want to connect with Vina, add yeah. value to her group. And I guarantee you, you'll catch her eye. What do you think? A thousand percent. I mean, I am very active in the group. I, I see who shows up. I see who, I, I already know who the successful people are going to be. I already know who the people I'm willing to partner with in the future are. Um, you know, I have one one girl on there. She's incredible and she's so tenacious. And she asked me the other day, she was like, hey, I ran into this issue. I need a, a proof of funds for a small multifamily, right? And if you're not in my group yet, you don't know why I really hate proof of funds letters. But um, she said, I need a proof of funds. And I said, okay, what do you, how much do you need it for? And she said, uh, I'm targeting assets between two and five million. And I said, okay, great. 
Um, you can tell them that I'm one of your potential equity partners and I'll give you a proof, proof of funds letter. And so she, I gave that to her. I've never done that before, but I did it because she's so active in the group and she just, I know that she's going to be successful and I want to be partnered with people like that. So yes, absolutely. I, I notice I pay attention. I love it. Awesome. So guys, not only that, she just kind of dropped that in there casually. If you're actually providing value, Vina might even partner with you personally. So guys, mm -hmm. everything you want, education from Vina, partnering with Vina, what you do first is you give value to her mm -hmm. community. That's yes, what you need to favorite. do first, because that's what she's focused on. So if you mm -hmm. give that first, then you're going to 100% be able to learn everything you need to about multifamily. I love it. Yeah, um, no, that's exactly it. And and honestly, I shouldn't even be the one you want to partner with. There's so many cool people in that group that are way, 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 way qualified to be your partners. I love it. Vina, what else could, should people, your Instagram is just your name, right? So people yeah. can follow you on Instagram. Do you have a YouTube? I do. Oh gosh. It's Vina Jetty one, like the number one. But if you go to vinajetty.com, it should just connect you to everything that you need. Okay, so vinajetty.com. That's yes. just where you'll find all your socials. Yeah, all that the Facebook stuff. group. Yeah, the Facebook right. group. That's like right. the value. That's like where you're going to give value, where you really yeah. want to. You want to grow that. I can tell. Yeah. I can. That's feel where it. I hang out. Yeah, I hang yeah. out there all the time. I love that. Group. And it costs it costs like a hundred thousand dollars to get into the Facebook group now. A million now. <laughs> no, it's free, guys. It's, it's free. Everybody. It's yeah. free. That's like the insane part about it is I already know it's free because I'm in it. And it's like, and it's. Oh, you owe me a million dollars then. I got to get the, I got to get the multifamily. And then that's how I'm, I'm going to get it to you. I'm going to get it to you through private money. That's how my plan I, on it. I love it. I love it. You mean through LPs, right? Not Whatever it is. I don't know. <laughs> LPs, no. limited partners. I 100% I will. Vina, you're amazing. That was so enjoyable. Do you have any last words for everybody on the podcast? Yes, everybody should be doing multifamily. Just go and do it. Like, you know, true entrepreneurs, they jump off the cliff and figure out how to build the airplane on the way down. You need to do the same thing. I love it. Amazing. Also, your nails are amazing. I, I was oh, noticing that you. throughout the, the uh, podcast. It's like Halloween color. I, you know what? This is like more of a salmon, but I actually need to get them redone. So okay. they're at the end of their, their life. I love it. All right, guys. Amazing. Awesome. Vina, thank you so much. Guys, I'm Josiah Grimes is coming on next week. He's the business partner of Jamil. Yeah. He's also amazing person. It's going to be great. That's also, I think, going to be at the same time as this one. I think it's going to be, no, it's going to be 1 p.m. MST. No, 1 p.m. Yeah, 1 p.m. AZ. So that's like one hour ahead of this. I'll be posting about it on my social. That was what time zone Arizona is ever. Yeah, right? Like, I, who, who it really, just nobody knows. They just do their own thing out there. Um, but he'll be on next week. It's going to be great. Vina, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push everyone to go to your Facebook community. And you will start seeing me slowly for the next three months. And then you're going to really start seeing me around June. Just FYI, you're going to like start... June is where you're going to be like, oh, there yeah. he is again. That's the guy who interviewed I me on that, that podcast. I love it. So. You should try to be in the top 10 because every month, the top 10 most active contributors to the Facebook group, we do a private Zoom where Ooh. we get to do like, Q&A, intense Q&A. And everybody else can watch the recording in the vault, but you get to like be live asking like your questions. And it's only ten, the top 10 and then they get a plus one. So it's at most, it's 20 people. I love it. Vina, you're amazing. I'm ending it. Scorch the fears. Let's freaking go.